Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of John, chapter 4, 7a, 13 through 24. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. This is God's work. Good morning, church. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is perfect in a world where there is so much that is imperfect and so much that's changing. Your word does not change. Heaven and earth are going to pass away, but your word will not pass away. And so I pray that this morning that you would give our ears the ability to be attentive to your word, that you would help me as I speak. I pray that you would keep me from error. And we pray that the Lord Jesus would be magnified. Amen. The title of this morning's sermon is Worship in the Presence of God. My goal is for us to explore together what the Bible teaches about worship. The Bible has all sorts of themes in it. Uh, And a few of them are so central that you could trace them as a thread to tell the whole story of the Bible. So, for instance, the idea of a king, you could use that. God is the king of everything. And he made Adam and Eve, and he made Adam to be the king over the creation. He said, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over this earth. But Adam didn't want to be under God's authority. He wanted to be like God. Then there was Israel. It had kings. Those kings failed. And then one comes who's the king of kings and the Lord of lords, and we wait for him to make his enemies a footstool for his feet. Or you could tell the story of the Bible by tracing the theme of the image of God. We were made in God's image, but we marred that image. And Jesus came as the perfect image bearer, and one day we are going to be perfectly reflecting him. Now, I put this sermon together before knowing the news that Israel would be at war today. And so I'm going to mention Israel many times, 
And may God bring peace and protection to the nation of Israel. And so with Paul in Romans 10, we say that our heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they would be saved, both physically and spiritually. This morning, I'm going to tell the story of the Bible by focusing on a theme of worship, particularly as it relates to the presence of God. Adam and Eve were made to worship, but they failed and they were cast from God's presence. Israel was made to be a nation that would worship God in the land of his presence, but they failed, the temple was destroyed, and they were kicked out of their land. Jesus came and he brought a new era of worship as we heard in the scripture reading. And so we now worship in spirit and truth because of him. And there's amazing things to come. What, how amazing it will be when we see Jesus and we worship him face to face. Now what the Bible has to say about worship is immense. Because our purpose as human beings is to worship and glorify God, isn't it? So, in a sense, all of the Bible and all of human history is about worshiping God. Ron Mann, who's our missionary in residence, just published a book titled Let Us Draw Near. Uh, This book is his magnum opus. It covers what the Bible teaches about worship. Guess how many pages are in that book? 700-some. I downloaded it on Kindle this week. Ron, we celebrate with you its completion. What a milestone. So if Ron can write 700 pages, there's obviously a lot that can be said about worship. And you're thinking, how long am I going to be here this morning? (laughs) By the end of this sermon, I hope that you'll see that the story that God tells to us is that he wants us to worship him. He wants us to worship in his presence. And as we think about the big picture of the Bible, the goal is that on Sunday mornings when we gather together, we would be more in awe of the fact that we get to do this and we get to enter God's presence and worship him together. So I'm going to trace my way through scripture and for each passage, for each section, we're going to ask, what does this teach us about worship? And what does this teach us about God's presence? What does it mean for us to worship him as those who are made by him? And what is God's presence? How do we get into God's presence? How do we stay in God's presence? So let's start at the very beginning, a very good place to start. God's people in God's presence. The Bible starts with God's people in his presence. Genesis 1 through 3 teach us that man was created to worship God. But when people valued, Adam and Eve valued something else more than they valued God, he cast them out of his presence. God made the world for his glory. And even before making this world, he made angelic beings and cherubim and seraphim to bring him glory. And so he made the world and he made people in that world to reflect his image, to bring him glory. He made man to worship him. Man, the creature, is created to reflect and bring glory to the creator. And he was given the responsibility to exercise dominion on God's behalf over this incredible creation that God has made. But Adam and Eve failed in their worship of God. God was walking with them in the garden in the cool of the day. Can you imagine being in God's presence? But that test came, the serpent came. 
They had to obey God's voice. They had to worship him alone to want to obey him more than wanting the fruit. But Satan said, it's not enough to be an image bearer. It's not enough just to worship him. You need to grasp it more. You need to be like him. You need to put yourself in his place. And so, rather than choosing to trust his words alone, they trust another's words. And the result of that disobedient worship was what? They were cast out. They were not to enter again. There was the cherubim and the flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. They could not go back. They were separated. Well, what about the patriarchs? Okay, Looking ahead to the patriarchs. By the patriarchs, we're talking about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Well, God appears to them. He says, I want to start something new with you. And through the lives of the patriarchs, we learn that true worship involves a life of faith, and they also do ritual actions. They do things that express physically their worship. So Abraham was called out of Ur. That's where he was born. And the land that he was in, in Ur, that was Babylonia. And God was calling Abraham to leave the land of Babylonia, to leave the gods of Babylonia, to leave the gods of his family and go follow this God that he's just met to a new place. And Abraham does it. He trusts God. He trusts God's word. He goes to that new place following this God. When Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were met by God and after they had trusted him and followed him in faith, Then they performed actions that demonstrated that they were worshiping him rather than worshiping those other gods. So after Abram traveled to Canaan, the Lord appeared. And this is what it says in Genesis 12. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, To your offspring I give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord. That was his response who had appeared to him. And then from there, he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord, and he called on the name of the Lord. The Lord appeared to Isaac, his son. He said, I'm the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not. I'm with you. I will bless you. I will multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. Then God met Jacob, Isaac's son. God said, I'm going to call you Israel instead of Jacob, and a company of nations and kings are going to come from you, and you're going to get this land. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where God had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. And he poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So we can see in the lives of our forefathers in the faith, they responded to God to God's call by following him, by having a life of faith, and then they performed certain actions. Now, all this is very strange to us. I haven't ever slaughtered an animal on an altar. It just sounds very strange. But we have to remember that this has been going on since the beginning of the world. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve fall. And what happens in Genesis 4? Cain and Abel, and they're offering sacrifices. One's acceptable, one's not. But right away from the beginning, people know, they feel, I need to offer something to God. Fast forward, Moses. 
In Exodus, through Deuteronomy, we see God establish a nation of his presence. Through the accounts of Moses and the Mosaic Law, we learn that we must worship God only in the way that he requires. He makes the rules for us to be in his presence and not us. Can you think mentally of any examples of the Israelites where God got angry about their worship? I'm sure you can. God redeems the people from Egypt, and he says, essentially, I'm the Lord who brought you out, and here's how I want you to live. He gives them the Ten Commandments, and he says, there shall be no other gods except me. You shall not make images of me, and I want you to rest every seven days and remember me. In fact, the worship of God was actually a primary purpose for the creation of the nation of Israel. God said in Exodus 3, he says to Moses, You and the elders shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. God's creating a nation to worship him. Now, God gives them all kinds of detailed instructions, doesn't he? There's laws about rituals, there's sacrifices, there's massive amounts of blood every day. There was the burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, the guilt offering. They had to pay attention to what was clean and what was holy and what was unclean. And the consequences for not listening to what God said were severe. They couldn't go near the mountain or they would die. Only Moses, the mediator, could go up. Remember Nadab and Abihu? They tried to offer fire to the Lord, and God struck them dead. So why, how does this apply to us today? Well, this teaches us about God's character, doesn't it? We can't just decide ourselves how we want to worship God. We have to pay attention to what God has told us about how we worship. His preferences matter infinitely more than ours. Worship is not about us. It's about him. There's one, you know, worship leader saying that I've never said to any of you here, but it goes like this. The person says, I, I don't know, I just didn't really like worship today. And the worship leader says, well, good, we weren't worshiping you anyway. Worship is about God. So God is establishing a physical nation state. And as he does, how does God dwell in their presence? There's a tabernacle, isn't there, that he gives them? There's the outer courts. There's the holy place. And there's the most holy place. And God dwells in that most holy place. But could they get as close to God as Adam and Eve could in the garden? Nowhere close. The high priest can go in and he, but how often? Once a year and not without blood. This is limited access. God is dwelling physically in the midst of people. Now, the layout of the tribes is interesting in the way that it's described in Numbers It says there's three tribes on this side, there's three tribes on this side, there's three tribes on this side, three tribes on this side, and the tabernacle's right in the middle. So God wanted himself to be dwelling right in the middle of the people. 
Fast forward to the promised land. That's a place for God's presence. In Joshua, in the historical books, we see the people enter the promised land and they become a nation with a place. Jerusalem is established as their political and religious center. This is a place for God's presence. So their time in the promised land teaches us that God wants his people to have a place marked by his presence, set apart for the worship of him alone. Now, when they went in, the land was already occupied, and God wanted them to drive out the people that were in that land. Why? Because of their idolatry in that land. God said, I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out before you. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. So God takes up residence in that tabernacle, and then they make a temple. That temple is where God is going to dwell. Solomon prays. God's glory fills the temple. Where did they build the temple? God had foreshadowed this in Abraham's life. God had told Abraham to go to Mount Moriah with his son Isaac, his only son, to sacrifice him. Abraham was willing to trust God with something so unimaginable. He lifts the knife, and then the angel says, Stop. Instead of Isaac, the only son, there's a ram, a male sheep caught in the thicket. It is sacrificed instead of the son. And what does 2 Chronicles tell us? It tells us that this is the place where the temple was built. This is incredible. God was the one who was telling the people, you can't get near me unless there's a sacrifice. God had them put blood on the doorposts when they left their old nation. He was the one who had their forefather have substitution be a part of his story. And now in this place, God has chosen this place in Jerusalem where he's going to dwell and there is sacrifice to get near to God. Well, The Psalms, think about the Psalms. What do they teach us about worship? All kinds of things about worship, don't they? The Psalms are language for worship. They show that God wants us to worship him with our whole hearts. Today, the language that we use in worship, we get it from a hymn book. We get it from words on a screen. We we can sing songs in the car if we want to. For Israel, the language that they used in worship was the Psalms. That was their primary songbook. They had a songbook, and its lyrics were written by God. Isn't that not not beautiful? God put his thoughts on their lips. He taught them how to pray. So if you grew up in Israel going to synagogue, these are the words you sang. And that's probably why the Psalms are quoted more than any other book in the New Testament. Because they're saying words. They're saying song lyrics that they're used to saying all the time. The Psalms, of course, contain songs on all sorts of subjects. Every emotional state, there's joy, there's lament, there's fear. It taught them to long for the nearness of God. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. How I long to go to the altar of my God, who is my exceeding joy. But the Psalms also taught the people that they could 
follow, they could interact with God anywhere. Think of all the Psalms where David is in the wilderness and he's being chased by somebody and yet he trusts the Lord. It taught us, taught them and it teaches us that worship is a matter of the whole heart. God wants to interact with us about everything that is going on in our lives. One other thing that the Psalms teach us about worship is that it involves our body. There's so much physicality in the Psalms. There's playing instruments. There's shouting. There's being still. There's lifting hands. There's bowing down. It teaches us it's not wrong to be expressive toward God. If we can jump up and down at our TV or in a stadium, uh, being excited about something, certainly we can do those things when we are excited about the joy we have in Jesus. God wants us to express ourselves to him in response to his character. But if we get all excited about those things but our lives do not accord, God hates that. That's what the prophets teach us. The prophets say, return to true worship. The prophets teach us that God hates, he hates worship when there's rituals but lives don't accord with it. God calls them and he calls us to return to true worship. He was so harsh when he spoke through Amos. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Don't oppress your neighbor. Do what I say in the law. Then I will be pleased with the rituals that you bring. Through Hosea, God said, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Jesus loved this passage. He quoted it twice in the book of Matthew, saying that God desires mercy and not sacrifice. So let's trace where we've been, okay? It's a lot. But you start out with Adam and Eve. They are God's people in God's place, in God's presence, but they're cast out. Now the nation of Israel, the nation of Israel was God's people in God's place, in God's presence. And God said, I don't like your songs. And they were cast out into exile. And so they wept by the waters of Babylon They wished that they could sing songs like they did back in the land. Eventually, they did rebuild the temple. Nehemiah, Ezra, some of them are back in the land, but they're overrun by Persians and Romans. And so, if you were the people then, you must have wondered, are we still the people of God's presence? For 400 years, they don't hear God speak to them through the prophets. That's how long it is between the Testaments. So they have the place, but does it really feel like this is true? And so this brings us to the New Testament. In the Gospels, we meet the person of God's presence. Jesus comes. And what does it say in the beginning of Matthew? Who is Jesus? He's Emmanuel. He is God with us. God is with us. The Gospels teach us that Jesus 
is the perfect worshiper, and his sacrifice enables us to worship God. So Jesus begins his ministry, and he goes through a 40-day period of testing in the desert. In that testing, Jesus worships God perfectly. Adam did not worship God perfectly. Israel was in the desert for 40 years, and God was not pleased with the way that they interacted with him. But Jesus, he obeyed God completely on no food. He worshiped God. The last of Satan's temptations, Jesus responds by saying, Worship the Lord your God. Him only shall you serve. So, the perfect worshiper, the God-man, comes. He's God's presence to us, and he's man who is worshiping perfectly. And so, we come to John 4, which we heard Betsy read before the sermon. Here's a few verses of it again. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Now note who Jesus is speaking to here. This is actually the longest dialogue that Jesus has with anybody in the Gospels. And he has it with the Samaritan woman. The Samaritans were suspect, according to the Jews, for ethnic reasons and for religious reasons. The Samaritans said, you're not supposed to worship in Jerusalem. You're supposed to worship at Mount Gerizim. So there's an entirely separate place. They didn't accept all of the Old Testament. They accepted just the Pentateuch, and they accepted their version of the Pentateuch, of the first five books of the Bible. And this woman who's talking to Jesus is not living a right life. The one she has now is not her husband. And this is the person that Jesus chooses to tell about the new era of worship. That tells us that Jesus is seeking worshipers and that the Father is seeking worshipers. When she asks him lots of questions, it's not clear in the text if she's asking about this just because she's trying to change the subject or this is a genuine question. It doesn't tell us. But Jesus responds by first saying, well, salvation's from the Jews, so basically you're wrong, okay? <laughs> salvation's from the Jews. That, you're worshiping what you don't know. But here's the thing. The time is coming when you're going to worship, and it's not going to be in Jerusalem. And it's not going to be at Mount Gerizim. Instead, you're going to worship in spirit and truth. What? How can that be? Well, when we say spirit, we mean our spirits worshiping God, our hearts. It doesn't tell us, there's no capital letters in the Greek to tell us if this is capital spirit or lowercase spirit, but it's our spirits worshiping God, enabled by the Holy Spirit, and we need to worship in truth. In truth means we worship according to the Bible. And so if we worship God in ways 
that doesn't involve our spirit, doesn't involve our heart, if our heart is somewhere else, that's not worshiping in spirit and truth. If we worship in ways that are contrary to the Bible, that's not worshiping in truth. But we have this amazing privilege to worship in spirit and in truth because of what Jesus Christ has done. Participation in this worship is not by bodily descent. It's not in a specific place. It's instead governed by a new location. The place where we worship is Jesus. He's the new place. And God is seeking worshipers. God, that's, that's what missions is. God is seeking worshipers to worship him. Jesus says that the hour is coming and is now here because he's there and he's about to complete the atoning sacrifice. And then he does. He's sacrificed. He dies. He rises. And when Jesus dies, what happens in the temple in Jerusalem? The veil is torn. Right there in that spot, the veil is torn. And what does that say to us? There's access to God's presence. You can come near now. It's been a long time. You could only come with the blood of animals. But now the sacrifice has been accomplished. And you can draw near to God. What does the book of Acts tell us? Well, in the book of Acts, God is at work among his people. The book of Acts shows us how God transforms people into worshipers. 3,000 people are become worshipers of God in one day. There's dramatic displays of God's power showing that he's at work among them. And the Spirit is given not just the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the presence of God is given not just to Jews, but to Gentiles who begin to worship God in spirit and in truth all kinds of places, many of whom will never reach Jerusalem. God's people begin to worship in spirit and truth. The early disciples, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. These are simple gatherings. There's teaching. There's fellowship with one another. There's prayer. There's the breaking of bread. What does Hebrews tell us? Well, Hebrews teaches us that Jesus is the perfect priest. Jesus offers the perfect sacrifice. Jesus gives us perfect access to the Father. Jesus is the perfect priest. He gives the perfect sacrifice, which gives us perfect access. And so, Hebrews says, draw near. Draw near to God's presence. Hebrews is written to the Hebrews to help them understand how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. Other priests died, but Jesus never dies. He's in the line of Melchizedek, not like those other uh, priests. He's the perfect sacrifice. The other sacrifices had to be offered all the time. Jesus offered a sacrifice once for all. And it says that the temple was actually just a shadow. It says this, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So he's the perfect mediator. He allows us to draw near. And so in Hebrews it says, We have, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, 
That is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to the presence of God with a true heart in full assurance of faith. God wants us to have full assurance of faith when we worship. Am I allowed to be here? Am I allowed to be worshiping the true God? If I come through Jesus, yes, full assurance of faith. This is not stand far away. This is do not, do not touch. This is not, I might send out fire and you're going to die. This is draw near to God. We have access, praise the Lord, through Jesus. What do the epistles teach us? The epistles teach us that our worship is our whole life. God shows us that we're to present our bodies as sacrifices to God. Romans 12, after an explanation of the gospel, the whole salvation plan, what does it say? Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So sometimes people say, well, all of, you know, uh, all of life is worship. And that is true. It's not just a phrase that people say. That is Romans 12, 1 and 2. The New Testament, actually, did you notice what happens there? So the language about sacrifice, it's not used about a sacrifice. The language about sacrifice is about your life and my life. Our lives are the sacrifice. And so the language in the New Testament, and this happens many times in the New Testament, the language about sacrifice and ritual, it's applied to our lives. Our whole lives are to be worship. And interestingly, the worship, and interestingly, the purpose of church gatherings then the words for worship aren't used about church gatherings. Instead, the words that are used about church gatherings is edification and building one another up. Hebrews says this, let's consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. 1 Corinthians has a long section in chapters 12 through 14 about what we do in worship. Because the presence of God, the Spirit of God has been given to all his people, therefore our job is to build each other up with the work of the Spirit that's happening in our lives. Since you're eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. When we come together, we come to build one another up so that we can live lives of worship. Revelation. Worshiping forever in God's presence. In Revelation, God promises us a new heaven and a new earth where a new humanity worships perfectly in his presence forever. We will not only experience the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives and in one another in a fallen world. Instead, we will be in his presence. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. 
and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. We have an old Jerusalem. There was an old Jerusalem with a temple where people could go and meet God in the temple. But in the next age, in the new earth, there, it's a new Jerusalem which can fit all of God's people in his presence. Now, in Revelation, we're told that the, what's the shape of the new Jerusalem? It's 12,000 stadia wide, 12,000 stadia this way, 12,000 stadia high, which is immense. And it's a cube. Why is it a cube? Because the Holy of Holies was a cube. It's a way of saying, you're going to live in this city where it's like you're living in the Holy of Holies. You're going to be in my presence forever. You're going to worship me perfectly. No mediation. I am there with you. And that's going to be incredible. It says, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. God is the temple. We're in the temple. We are God's people in his presence. We will be worshiping not in Jerusalem or Mount Gerizim because the location is not a place like Jerusalem or Gerizim. The Father and Son are the temple. They are the location of worship. So, this whole sweep, consider how everything's amplified. So in the beginning, you have Adam and Eve there to worship God. It's two people, two people on this earth. Failure, Israel, millions of people, God's presence among them. Failure, Jesus, God with us, perfect worship. Us, the Holy Spirit, worship in spirit and truth in a fallen world. Now, millions, more than the eye can count from every tribe and tongue and nation, praising God perfectly in his presence. We imagine how amazing the Garden of Eden would have been. The future is better than the Garden of Eden. We get better than the Garden of Eden. God amplifies it. Praise God. And as we close, I have a question for you. Will you be in that city? Will you be in the New Jerusalem? Will you be one of the people living forever in God's presence, worshiping him? The only people who will be in the city are those who worship him in spirit and in truth now. And to worship God in spirit and truth now, you have to come to the Father through the Son. You have to come through the sacrifice of Jesus. The Lamb of God his blood must be applied to you so you can enter the presence of God. Revelation tells us that every person, small and great, is going to stand before God's throne.
There's going to be books that are opened. Everyone will be judged by what's in the books, and only those whose names are written in the book of life get to enter that new Jerusalem. So today, trust Jesus as your sacrifice. Admit your fault. Tell him you need help. Experience forgiveness and become a part of the people of God who worship in spirit and in truth. Get to know others who are on the same journey to the city of light where there's no darkness at all forever. Let's pray together. Lord, we praise you that you have made us to be your people. We praise you that you sent Jesus to be the new Adam, the new Israel who worshiped perfectly. And we give you praise and thanks that through his sacrifice, we don't have to go to a temple. Instead, we as your people are gathered throughout this earth, worshiping you in spirit and in truth, and longing for the day when we will be in your presence forever, with no sin No shame, no crying, but only knowing you. Thank you, and we long for that day. In Jesus' name, amen.